Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running for the rest of their lives. And today's show has a new sponsor. We are sponsored by Run for PRs. So Run for PRs coaching helps runners of all abilities discover their inner strength and potential. They understand how difficult it can be to juggle training with family, careers, and other pursuits, and they are excited to help you help you in your athletic journey while pushing you to new heights. So Run for PR's coaches work with athletes from all over the world through an online coaching platform that allows them to set your schedule, review your runs, communicate feedback, and hold you accountable. And all of their coaches are Boston Marathon qualifiers with years of coaching experience. So you can learn more either by going and following them on Instagram with their handle is at run4prs, that's the number four, PRs, or go to their website, which is www.run4prs.co. And if you go online and start up uh, with their coaching service, please use the rambling runner um, when you go there. So basically you just type in into the, how did you hear about a section to, Hey, the rambling runner podcast. So that also helps me out and it shows that, you know, you're going there because of the, uh, the recommendation from, uh, from me and the rambling runner podcast. And you might actually recall uh, Victoria came on the show a couple, a uh, couple weeks ago, had a very popular podcast. So she runs the, uh, the run for PRS company and Heather Larson, who's the dietitian for them, was on recently as well, so I was excited to have them come on and, and do the sponsorship. So, today's episode is with a very, very special individual. I just couldn't be more excited to put this show on because it just was so unique in a lot of ways. So, the guest is Robert Russell Moyer. So, I'm not going to do a big introduction right now because we actually go through it during the during this during the show. I just kind of lead right into it and we. We kind of dive into his background, but needless to say, this is a very unique episode. He is a uh, just an extraordinary person who has had a wide variety of life experiences, and I have a strong feeling that you are going to absolutely love this episode. So thank you so much for listening, and here is my interview with Robert. Hello, Robert, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Hello, Matt. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, I am so excited to chat. So thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So normally I just dive right into the questions, but I want to do a little little intro, a little biography with you on the line because this is I'm like writing this down in preparation from doing my research to make sure I have as good of an episode as possible. And it was incredible to me. So I just wanted to, to kind of go through this before we dive into the history, because I really do think it's incredible and there's a lot here. So you were born and raised in Austria and grew up as an avid soccer player. And yes. then we're just, we're just, we're just going to skip there and then just go right to um, you finished up. You got after six years, you got a master's in exercise science at the, is it the University of Vienna. Yes. All right, University of Vienna, and at that point in 2013, you moved to Boston, and a year later, you started seriously running for the first time. It kind of moved into the, your, your, I guess the running phase of your life. So that's yes. just four short years ago. A mm-hmm. year later, you run your first marathon. A year after that, 2016, 
you win the Black Bear Marathon, and you set a PR at CIM of 243, at which point you start doing ultra marathons and win six of your first seven 50K to 50-mile 50 50-mile uh, ultra marathons, including course records at the San Francisco 50-miler endurance run and the Night Sweats Trail Marathon and placed 16th at the very competitive North Face Endurance Challenge. That is quite a rapid rise in the running community. First of all, Robert, congratulations, my man. That is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, it, uh, my whole running journey definitely brought me to places that I would have not imagined like four years ago when I started. So it's, it's very exciting to, to sit here today and to talk to you about it. It really is a lot of accomplishments condensed into a very short period of time. I mean, the, the things that you've been able to accomplish is almost like a career's worth of accomplishments, even for a very, very good runner. So to, to do that in just basically 2015 to 2018 uh, is absolutely remarkable. But speaking of remarkable, the reason I wanted to dive into the intro is because I wanted to go back in time and basically set the stage um, with something that happened, you know, 10 years ago. So in 2008, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor. So you were what, around age 21 at the time? Um, yes, 21. So what, what was the process? How, how did that come about? How did you know um, that maybe something was going on with you? And, and why did you first get tested to see, to see what might have ailed you at the time? Okay, so 2008, um, it was in February, um, I was just finishing off my second year and busiest year in college, um, and as you, as you mentioned in the, in the introduction, I, I played soccer at this, at this point, so before heading out from my hometown, which is about 60 miles outside west from Vienna, um, I went to a soccer tournament and I, I just before rushing to the train, I, I clipped my, my toenails and one of the, those splinters um, just basically fell into my, into my left eye. And I noticed as I was, like I didn't really care about it, but as I walked up to the train, I closed my right eye and uh, tried to read the time and it was really weird because my, my vision is usually very, very good. But on my left eye, at this point, um, it was as if I was look, looking for a microscope and trying to zoom in and identify what I'm seeing. So I would, for like a millisecond, I would be able to read it. But then it got completely blurry again. So I relayed, like I just build up the connection between having injured my eye through the through the nail um but then i played the soccer tournament and they actually injured my ankle so my whole attention went to that and two or three days after that um i went back to my eye and it was still present so i went to the eye doctor um and he treated me for for like minor scratches on my on my eye but um couple days later that was healed but my symptoms still persisted so I was transferred to a specialist and they did an MRI and that um, 
found out that it was a benign tumor. So, it, but it was on a very delicate um, place because it was already um, penetrating the optical nerve, and that's why I had the, the vision issues. And there is the um, the couple of other centers close by, like the um, um, hormones center and the carotis that is responsible for, to deliver the blood to the brain. And so the tumor was right in between those three systems and already wrapping around it. Um, so that was the, the difficulty that uh, I had to encounter afterwards. So did the accident with like clipping your nails cause this or was this just almost like a happy accident that it kind of brought attention to something that was already forming. Right. So it is a, it was a happy accident because the tumor that was in, that they found or that I had is very slow growing. Um, so you, it just, uh, in my case, the right eye compensated for the left eye and therefore it just took over the, the vision and I would have not noticed anything until I would have gotten blind on, on one side or my hormone household would have gotten out of control or the, the blood delivery to the brain would have shut down. So I wouldn't have noticed until um, I would have had significant more issues than I had at this point. And if that was the case, did you ever ask your doctors what your prognosis would have been if you had caught it much later on in the process versus when you did catch it? It would have been, I prob so the prognosis from there was that I would have lost um, eyesight on on one side, um, yeah. And then the the further diagnosis it was really hard to to do guesses. I mean, it was benign, therefore I would mm -hmm. I was never in. I say I was never in danger of of my life besides the. Um, just the complication that can come up with a brain surgery and other procedures. Um, but that was what calmed me a little bit. Um, we, it was quite traumatizing for me and my family because my, my baby brother, um, he, is, he was six years younger than me. He died on a very aggressive brain tumor um, five years before that happened. So my whole family was pretty much still like chewing on that and trying to make sense of it. And then I was diagnosed with a benign brain tumor, but a lot of those emotion came up again. Um, and that was probably the most difficult part in that time. Holy cow. I, I can't even imagine all of the emotions that must have been going through your, your head and that of your parents as well, were they in the room when you got the diagnosis of the brain tumor? I guess the reason I ask is what was their, what was their reaction? Obviously when you hear um, that, it, that it's, um, that's not a, a malignant tumor, obviously that's a positive, but given your family's history, just with the, with the words brain tumor, it yeah. must've been quite a shock for everybody. Yeah. Um, so when they, after they did the the MRI, um, the doctors came up and I was actually by myself. So um, I do remember the feelings. Like I was laying on the bed. I got in the hospital, 
completely healthy and like the fittest that I've ever felt um, just because of the conditioning that I went through college. Um, and it's really hard to just um, like somebody tells you you're actually you're sick, but you actually you feel great. Um, and I guess that's the that's the issue that everybody goes through. If you have a tumor or worse, if you have cancer, like you, you actually feel good and somebody tells you, well, you are not good. Um, so in my case, then um, I tried to, I, I was by myself for, for a few minutes and I, I remember I was, I like just uh, tears were running down, just down my eyes and um and there were two doctors and they both were like, well, it's benign. So don't, the, it's, it's like the least aggressive form. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that, that's not why I'm crying. Like, it's just um, the most, what I, what I feared the most was just um, to, to tell it to my, to my mom. Um, so I called my dad and yeah, then they, they told it to my mom and, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of uh, just falling back in what happened five years ago. Um, like even I remember waking up from the from the surgery and my parents were there and my, I remember the face of my mom and it was just I knew she wasn't seeing me lying there. Like I could see that she she just uh, saw my brother Michi. Uh, laying just being there so it, it was it was difficult yeah so what is he was he 10 years of age when he, he passed yeah he was uh he was nine years he was about to turn 10 um a month a, a little bit over a month after he passed okay yeah um well first of all i'm so i'm so sorry to hear that i didn't know that um yeah. and obviously it, it 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 uh like you said, your parents. I think you you put it very well when you you talk about how your mom, when she was looking at you in the bed, she wasn't seeing you, she was seeing your brother. Um, what was it like in terms of, I guess, the the treatment needed to get rid of the tumor? What did that look like for you over the next year or so? Um, in terms of the the original prognosis and what eventually happened to get rid of the cancer. Okay. So I got diagnosed. It was um, February, I think, 8, uh, 2008. And I was supposed to go on a, on a ski instructor um, like 10 days in the mountains. Um, it was part of my education um, with friends. And I was really looking forward to that. But obviously I had to, I had to postpone that for a year because I, I got scheduled the surgery um, in the middle of the month. Um, and the surgery was, it was traumatic. Like um, I was, it, it took over eight hours to remove the tumor. And you were, I was put in, in a very awkward position. So my, my arm was compromised and didn't get oxygen or, or in, in not, not enough blood. So therefore it's like imagine the, 
a part of your body is like getting numb because because of that and then it it stays in that position for eight more hours um so when i woke up uh i had that incredible pain in my arm which i had like i I expected a lot of things to happen on, on a brain surgery but i didn't expect my arm to hurt um and then it's just i didn't I didn't know how much I was allowed to move, so I just tried to stay as still as possible and endure endure all those pains um, through the night. Um, so it was a very it was a very scary um, place to be in um, with a lot of emotions that I didn't expect that would happen, and then the recovery itself. Uh, I was in the hospital for a little bit over three weeks. Um, and just being in the in the bed and having been so fit before um, my my recovery, I kind of started to to rehab myself by just taking steps. That was there was a hallway in the hospital, so it, it was maybe like fifteen meter long. So one loop might have been like fifty meters. And I started like doing one loop and like continued to do so. And by the way, I got out of the hospital. I might have been able to do 10. And then at home, I continued to do that treatment myself. I wasn't able to go back to college until the next semester, which was in like September. So this was my time frame that I set myself. Um, I wanted to to get back to where I was before the surgery within those six months. Um, and things were moving well. I wasn't able to do a lot of impact activity, obviously. So soccer was clearly off the table. But I used mostly biking, cycling. Um, and then by the summer, so about four months after well, no, actually not. I got really frustrated because I thought I needed to be so much further than I was already in May, which was three months after the surgery. Um, so actually, I start. I, I played. I got the helmet, uh, like um, the Czech goalkeeper that played for Chelsea. If you if you watch soccer, Peter Czech, he wore it after um, he had a. A, a bad trauma to his head, so I started to wear that, but doing no. Yeah, it uh, it kind of looks like a rugby helmet. Exactly, like a rugby helmet. Um, so I just started to play without doing any anything with my head. Um, and by September, I went back and played with our second team. Um, and I, it went really, it went really well. So, exercise. To coming back to the question, exercising. Um, just helped me to get through that trauma and to get out of that dark place. For me, it was really just, I I started to doubt myself physically. Like it was really um, intimidating if I would ever get back to that level where I was before the surgery. And then being in the middle of, being in the middle of my, my degree, which was, both physically, but then also obviously mentally challenging. I just, I just really doubted if I would get back um, and if I would be able to finish it. 
Um, so there were a lot of fears that I had to that I had to battle with during that time. And yeah, until recently, I wasn't the best to share those fears. So they just basically stayed within myself. So what happened to your, what what was the surgery's effect on your body versus Mm -hmm. the surgery's effect on, you know, your brain and your head and things like that. So what Mm -hmm. you talk about your recovery, um, from the surgery how how did it affect different parts of your body okay so since i'm start i'm starting from the head the, the effect on this from the surgery on the head was um i still have no sensibility on the skin on on large parts of my head um that's just because the the scar is really like going from one corner, following the line of the forehead, going all the way down to the ear on the other side. So that was performed uh, so you don't see the scar when you, like, you if you if I have hair, you wouldn't see the scar. Um, they actually accessed my skull right uh, on, the, on the left forehead, so right above my eyebrow. So I have a lot of screws and and plates uh, in there, which I can feel. Um, I was, I am, and I was very, very um, affected by heat and weather changes. Um, That was a major reason why I considered myself, like when it came to running, I was not, I did not perform well when it was hot, um, just because of, my brain and my head was more sensitive to it, but I can't, since last August, I can't really say that anymore because uh, I won the Mount Diablo 50K in over 100 degrees weather. Um, oh, that's all? That's all? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> since... and, you moved to, and you moved to California, exactly. Robert. I'm... I mean, let's, let's, it's not as if you're moving, you know, living in Canada right now. Right. So <laughs> since then, I'm, I'm like, it, it really took that moment to, for myself to, to trust, like, okay, you might be, um, you might be not as like strong when it's hot as if it's cool, but everybody is that obviously. Right. But for me, it really took that, like that specific moment to realize, okay, heat is not holding you back neither. Like you can check that off your list and you move on. Um, yeah. So, and then other than that, it's mostly um, what helped me back after the surgery. It's just being in, being in bed for so long. Like it, you really underestimate um, what it does to your muscles. They degenerate, they degenerate um, all those all the medication, like being on, um, being on that high medication of morphine, it, yeah, it, it just, I felt completely like deflated after getting out of the hospital. And then, and I was weak, like just getting, when I arrived at my parents' house, my, my room was in the, in the first floor. So I just had to walk up those stairs and I, I had to catch my breath. Like, this is what happens from, like, surgery to, like, one month after. Um, and then it is just nobody really talks with you about, like, what 
what you can do and what you can't do. And especially as as an active person, and as you know, like we just we just try to like it's like training. I'm I'm starting at that state, and I want to improve. So obviously, I want to try to push it and get better quickly. But then most doctors, especially in the general medical field, they they follow more the approach like of very conservative, and they don't they just don't encounter people like that so um, therefore you don't get a lot of guidance and it's a lot of guessing um, and therefore uncertainty if I'm risking my my own health now or if I'm able to do that right that's true I, I can see that I can see how that would be frustrating but at the same time did you ever feel like because the doctors were very conservative about the steps in your recovery that you do you ever feel like you were exceeding their prognosis and like maybe that was maybe motivating at all like hey like they didn't think I could do it but I did do it like did that sort of feeling motivate you to keep pushing hard to get back onto the soccer pitch yeah I mean that definitely like the soccer pitch was was a big motivation um and yeah it definitely motivated me and I mean, after this first surgery, I had to a big moment and a very disappointing moment was uh, three months after the first surgery when I had my first um, just checkup and I got that MRI back and there was clearly um, there was a it was either scar tissue or there was a, a rest of the tumor in there um, and everybody thought I was. I was just so frustrated and sad and like basically devastated, but everybody talked me down. No, no, no. It's, it's car tissue. Don't worry about it. Um, and for the next two years, for the next three years, I would go to very recent uh, checkups, like every three months to every six months, I would be sent to all kinds of specialists like gamma, um, gamma um radio with with gamma ray radioactive therapy and other more other therapies and all of those specialists say that it's too risky and to treat that rest or that scar tissue and then three years later um just almost at the end of my like studies well right in the middle of my studies again, it it was confirmed that I needed a, another procedure. Um, so I needed a second surgery in 2011. And going into that pre- surgery, I already backed away a little bit from soccer because I started to just enjoy the outdoors, like climbing, mountain biking, and just hiking. So I see like how this stage of my life really translates with how why I enjoy trail running so much right now and preparing for the second surgery I really trained um, as hard as I could to be as fit as possible before the surgery because I know what it's gonna take out of me and then I only I also had only two months to finish up my um my my semester instead of the four months and I talked with all my professors about it and they allowed me to finish it in two months so I just put like this was a three to four month preparation 
both mentally and physically to just make me free through the summer and then bounce back stronger and faster than it did after my first surgery because that was kind of a frustrating experience for me that it took so long. Well, considering what happened to your brother and the trauma that both his diagnosis and yours must have had on your parents, how was your mindset during that three-year period, 2008 to 2011, um, where after, your, after the initial procedure, you had this back and forth of like, all right, is there still a tumor in there, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. You have your own recovery that you're dealing with. What was your mindset like during that time? Like, do you have, do you have wild swings of positivity and negativity or, you know, how would you characterize that? Yeah. Well, there, there were definitely mind swings, especially once the next MRI was around the corner. Um, and like that, that rest or yeah, that rest that was in there kept incrementing by just a millimeter or two each time. But I was told like it's it's all right, and that I knew it wasn't all right. But I was like, okay, well, it's all right. So even though I didn't believe it, you kind of, I just went with it. Um, so in between those periods, I just made the, I kind of you you try to I tried to just keep it away from me, and it it just stayed in the back of my head. I would say. Um, cause yeah, I was busy with pursuing my dreams and I wouldn't let anything held me back. And what were your dreams at that point? Okay. Um, at that point, um, one of my big, my biggest dream was to, to finish, um, school, to graduate, um, start teaching, um, at the, at high school level. Um, which I start, which I actually started just a few months after my second surgery. Um, I also had one year between first and second surgery, 2009, 2010. Those two, this, uh, stu- this year in college, I did a year abroad in Spain, in La Coruña, which was very, um, it was very important for both my personal but also for my professional career because we got to work with some of the best um in in the in the field of Spain and Spain when it comes to sports they are they are one of the best nations in the in no matter which sport we're talking about so it was it was amazing to have professors that were working in like La Primera División in the in the highest uh, soccer leagues, or who has been one of my my athletics coach was a was a former Olympic medal contender in the hundred meters in '86, and it was just amazing to absorb all this energy and that knowledge that I have never been exposed to before. Yeah. So at that point you didn't really have your own personal athletic goals. It was more of um, academic and professional goals. Yes, that is correct. So then you have your second surgery, 2011. And then you're, mm-hmm. obviously after that, quickly thereafter, you get your master's, 2013. Mm-hmm. When did, after your second surgery, were you able to kind of 
put not put the brain tumor in in the past, but kind of transition your life from someone who's actively dealing with this issue to someone who is now kind of living the next phase of their life. Mm-hmm. So I took a, so I met my wife uh, in December, 2012. Um, and after, and that was just before I finished my master's and like finishing because I rushed back after the second surgery and just um, put my head into working in a high in a high school as a teacher while simultaneously writing my master thesis and I'm also very goal oriented so I had certain certain date a certain date in mind where I scheduled my my graduation because in it's in Austria it's it's very different than this than the system here it's that the college is very self-organized um so you basically you are responsible to to schedule to to create your schedule you're responsible to to set up these final exams you're responsible to find somebody to that supports your master thesis so I set a certain date and I had, I was kind of in tonal vision between like after my second surgery until that graduation day. And then it was just like, like the air was gone. I fell a little, I really, again, fell into a hole, which happens a few times, happened a few times before. And just recently again. Um, So after accomplishing a goal and then like, there is this empty space moving forward. Um, it was hard, but together with my with my wife, and um, she's just this amazing, driven, supportive person. And I, she 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 was the first person when she when she met me the day she met me. She asked me, "So, I want to hear your story." And I was like, "What What do you mean you want to hear your story? Like, never. I've never." been asked something like that before and that that story just broke like that question broke a lot loose in myself um and i think was the important piece of how i could overcome what was in the in the past and um just starting that process um on integrating that and moving on like i i used to be kind of skittish about my scar not because I, w- I was ashamed of it but it just triggers a certain reaction in people when I meet them it makes it makes people uncomfortable um, and it makes me uncomfortable because of it but now I'm I'm bearing it as almost as pride because it it really is what made me the person who I am now. Well, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. When you say when you say that it made you the person you are now, what exactly about that experience are you referring to? Um. So, having experienced early in my life um, to lose like a person that you love and. Like obviously my brother is is nine years old. It kind of sets the stage to um, starting to life like live your day right, like just live every day as if it's the last. 
but then through just life comes in the way and you forget about this lesson um, and you start to focus on things again that might not be the most yeah just not the most important things but just because society you think or society just puts the pressure on you or you you have the feeling you have to do those things like get your 40 40 hour eight to five or nine to five job and do this and that and just provide um it just veers off the path so then having experienced it myself it kind of amplifies that like live your day but still i there were still all and over again i would fall back into the pattern um and i do think that since 2013 but mostly since 2014 since i started running um i am much better in making those choices when it comes to what's good for myself and being able to say no to things is is a hard lesson i think for a lot of people it's still not always easy for me but um it's it it's important like i just i value myself i value my life i value whoever is in my life um and I'm just, if I have to scale back because I need it, then I allow myself to do so. So why then in 2014 did you start running seriously? Because you, you just yeah. mentioned how like you, you went through this period and still do where you try to kind of eliminate things from your life that aren't necessities or aren't things that you value. So what about running was something that you thought you would value? And then uh, what did you see in it pretty early on that wanted you to kind of ramp up how much you were doing? Yeah. So that is, it's a pretty, um, it was a poor coincidence. Um, Running was always part of my life, but just as conditioning for soccer, obviously. So I didn't necessarily enjoy running because running only had the purpose of conditioning but didn't have necessarily a con like a purpose itself but 2014 uh so my wife went to law school in boston at this point um we were we were still going through my papers so i was going back and forward between um austria and and the u.s until i had my green card finally in may 2015 um so 2014, her birthday is on April 14th, which is always right around the Boston Marathon. Um, so I was there. I had Easter vacation. So I went there to visit her uh, f- for her birthday. And obviously she was busy in, in, in school. So there was this event that I didn't necessarily know too much about it. Um, which was the Boston Marathon. Um, so I went there, and it was the year when Mab won, and the year after the bombings. And I don't know if you were there that day on 2014, but the the atmosphere on the course, it was just amazing. Like every single person was supporting every runner. Like it was 
families were there. It was just incredible. So I came back home that day and I said, I told Tiffany, my wife, okay, I'm, I want to I wanna run this race. And this started to do some research, found out about my 305 qualifying standards like the day later. And I said, okay, well, I might have been a little bit too fast with my <laughs> with my my goal setting because <laughs> that is that is just so fast. Um, and Tiffany said, "Well, why? Like, why don't you just go for it?" And I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna train as hard as I can, but I'm gonna prove you wrong that even if I train really hard, like this is just outrageous. Like, I'm gonna prove you wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna fail. <laughs> exactly. Pretty it's much. like the it's like the exact opposite of I, like a motivational quote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then I was just like, I made all those." Um, like I went outside the next day and just ran 10 miles as hard as I could. I didn't even know it was 10 miles because I just, I got outside and ran like with a cotton t-shirt and like my soccer shorts and some old trainers. And I was, I came back and I ran it in around like 90 minutes. So I was. I I was happy with that. It was like it was a good start. I was like, okay, maybe, maybe if I put some work in, I can I can do this. And I I didn't have a watch or anything. So I just I looked at the at the clock leaving the house, and I, when I got back, I looked at the clock again. So that's that's how I trained for a while, almost seven months until I actually invested in in some tracking device. Um, but yeah, I was so sore after that run for for like four or five days. I could barely walk just because I ran obviously too far and too hard. And just because I played soccer my whole life and was running on grass doesn't necessarily mean that that translates to running straight on pavement. <laughs> Robert, so, what were they teaching you in these exercise science classes? Exactly. I mean, come on now, man. <laughs> Yeah, so that is exactly what happened. I thought it, none of those things would apply to me um, because of my background with soccer. I was like, I read, I know, I knew all of it. I just, I really was that ignorant that I thought it would not apply to me. Um, that's I, like, that's the case with like every, like, you know, high school and college athlete who has success, takes time off and then gets into running. I feel like this is like the common refrain. The idea of like, well, I used to be a really good athlete, so I can just skip some steps. Yes, exactly. Like that's exactly what's happening. So, um, it took a few. It took a few months, and I, I worked my way from one running injury into another running injury, and by August, so started my journey with running end of April. By starting of the beginning, the beginning of August, I like. I ended up um, having a really, really mild stress fracture that I went, I never went to the doctor to have it diagnosed, but I just, as soon as I went outside and I ran, like that dull, numb pain just shot everywhere so I couldn't even walk. So I stopped there and started to do non-impact stuff for, for a few weeks until it felt like I I could bear my weight again so by the end of august uh starting september 
I actually remembered what I learned in school and I started to run still without any tracking device, um, but really, really, really slow focusing on form um, that 180 steps per minute formula and started to transition a little bit from um, from a heel striker to a more uh, mid to forefoot strike and just yeah since then I'm sticking to to that um, slow and steady approach and I haven't had any um, besides some tightnesses for a few days um, I haven't had any injuries since then I'll tell you, I had the exact same experience about when I converted to midfoot, forefoot striking. I've never had an impact injury since. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was like you said, I've had tightness some places. And, you know, I just ran up and down Killington Mountain as part of the Under Armour Mountain Race Series. I did a 10K. Awesome. Like, my quads, my quads were thrashed after. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely in horrendous shape. And, you know, so you have, you have things like that. But, just from like a normal running perspective, when I changed my running form, it made all the difference. Now it was a process. It didn't happen overnight. That's exactly. for sure. But I had the exact same experience and it's, it really has, you know, every, it, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say everyone should do it, but I know it had definitely had a positive benefit to me. Yeah, it does. I mean, you just use the forces that are, uh, that you're against in your favor. Like, um, as I like to describe it with my, if my train is, it's just like, if you're heel striking, obviously it's really a stop each time. Like you just put your heel on the brakes. Um, but when you're on mid and forefoot, you just, you maintain that pace. And by maintaining the tall and forward leaning posture, like the whole energy goes towards the back and you propel forward. So it's, it's a very, it's a very different style of running. And I mean, you made the, you made the transition. Like if you're a heel striker, you you feel like you have to be very powerful when you run, just because you're more. You need to use your quads much more. While when you actually start, or when you are able to do the transition, you should feel light and it should feel easy when you're running. Like, yeah. And there's different, and there's different levels of heel heel strikers too. Yes, right? I mean, there's some people who really stride out in front like pretty mm-hmm. far you know, with like that straight leg, yes, which exactly. is like, it's like, it can be painful to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's others who kind of like, will heel strike, but in a very fluid motion where, you right. know, it's like, you know, and, I, and I'm thinking of not just about amateur runners, like Emily Sisson is mm-hmm. one of the best female runners in the world. And yeah. I, you know, she lives here in Providence. I've seen yeah. her do track workouts and I've seen her run on the roads. Like she's a heel striker, mm-hmm. but like, her her running ability isn't affected because it's a very light heel strike. Like you can right. see her feet move, and it's a very smooth transition that she does. Um, mm-hmm. So there are different levels of it. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Yeah, um, but yeah, it it, it definitely is. Uh, I mean, you, it definitely can't affect you. You called it out. Like the the biggest thing is that he that knee lock. Like as long as your as your joints don't lock and you keep is like if you keep your knee soft or a slight bend the muscle will absorb it. The, the dangerous thing when we talk about running injuries is really if you lock that leg and completely straighten it out, then it, it can get rough both on the knee but also on the, on the hip joint. So when in your training 
did you start to realize that, you know, you had, you know, obviously you put in a lot of work, you trained very hard and Mm -hmm. your success is directly correlated to the work you put in. But obviously, you know, just as obviously I should say, you're, you're certainly very talented as well to go from, Hey, I used to run as part of soccer, but nothing really too strenuous for running sake to then, you know, just two years later, winning marathons. Obviously you are a very talented individual as well. So when did you realize in your training that you had a gift for this that could propel you to doing something special? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's, ex- in the beginning, it's exciting, right? When we start with that, that new journey and like it's every single run you have like a first, like, the fastest you, you you get faster all the time you run further you just feel better so it's like that whole first year was just like that in, incredible journey of feeling empowered and like s- slowly um growing that mindset of like what you were saying um, maybe maybe I found my, my destiny here. Like it doesn't just help me to, to clean my head and clean my mind and just feel good. And I had a lot of stressors during this first year of running, because as I mentioned, um, me and my wife, we were living basically on different continents, but going like back and forward on, on tourist visas to visit each other and my green card was pending, but we didn't have like a, a set date when it is going to happen. And it was delayed all and over again. Um, so what kept me sane was that was to run. And just like I would go out so desperate at times and just that easy running pace, it would just um, smooth my, my soul. Um, so that was the big thing in the beginning, I would say. Um, like I ran my, my first marathon uh, in October. So after having all those issues through the summer, not being able to run through August, I had some good running in September. Um, and I was able to finish my first marathon um, at the Bay State Marathon. So I'm sure you're familiar with that this year. I am close. the Bay State Marathon. That, yes. That's a big one for people who want to be Boston qualifiers. Exactly. That's why I choose it, obviously. <laughs> but um, so I thought, like, as I was training, like in September, like, and based on my paces and workouts, I thought yeah, maybe a three twenty is doable. And then I was like, hmm, maybe a three ten. And then on a on a good day, I was like playing and hoping with the idea that I could poss- possibly even get close to a three or five. Um, and I ran, I ran the basic marathon, and I was on. I ran my own pace. I didn't run with the the pacer, but I kind of kept the three or five pacer in my side. And I felt terrible the first twelve miles. I was like. That is not a good sign. No, it is not. <laughs> it was it was so terrible. Um and my wife was at the at the twelve mile mark, which is like a, going over a bridge, 
she was on the other side of the bridge and as soon as I saw her like suddenly like something completely different like weird happened like I went I'm sure I went out way too fast and my pace was not sustainable but suddenly like the pain disappeared and I actually I felt good running 12 to like I hit the 20 mile marker which is the wall and I felt good and I saw the I saw the 305 group coming closer and closer and then I hit mile 22 and it was just over <laughs> they faded they faded away and I had to slow down a lot but I finished in in 308 and Oof. I was I was like I, from this moment on like it's just I was like oh my gosh like I can't do this. I, I did not feel defeated at all of not making that mark. It was just really empowering. Like, oh wow, I, I would have. It was. It was amazing. So um, it just was a huge confidence boost for you. It was a huge confidence boost. Then going into um, the next six months, um, um, I, I just wanted to get the, my qualifier. Obviously, it was that basic marathon is in October, so it was after the window, anyways. Um, so I signed up for um, the um, in Maine in May um, the Sugarloaf Marathon, which was yeah, which was great. I, I trained really well for that uh, through the winter. Wait, the Sugarloaf is a is a mountain. Was it, was yes. this a really um, up and down race? Uh, it's it's a net to downhill. The first the first ten miles are is like I think four or five hundred feet of elevation gain, but then from mile ten to to the end, um, you have I do believe it's like a six hundred feet negative. So it it is it 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 goes more down than up, um, but it has some climbing in there. Um, and I started to, I got for my birthday in October, which is uh, from my, from my wife, a watch so I could track my workouts and it became much more structured. Um, I got the book, um, from Fitzgerald, uh, advanced marathoning, um, which I followed and I, I built my miles from 50 to 70 miles a week, um, and I felt very confident that I would be able to to Boston qualify and I was able to run so I ran on my second marathon, I ran two fifty three and qualified and it was awesome. Um, so who was it more awesome for? You or your wife, since you had started this whole <laughs> journey by trying to prove her wrong that you weren't going to be fast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> We, we <laughs> it was probably for us for us both. It was for me. It was really kind of mind blowing for her. She was like, she she didn't necessarily she doesn't necessarily necessarily enjoy running too much neither. So we were bounding over that, and then it it changed. So that was an interesting transition for me. Um, another very, yeah, she was awesome but less less not as much because of that race where she was she was like my sherpa and she supplied me on the aid stations with drinks so she was just amazing and i think had a huge part of of me accomplishing that goal 
but a few weeks, two weeks before that race, um, I ran the the Brain Tumor Alliance 5K in Boston, um, and obviously I had that was that was something personal, uh, and that was actually the first race that I won, um, and I still that and that was it was so elevating and such. I mean, I really wanted to do well on that race and ideally I wanted to win it but accomplishing that like a year after having started running winning my first race and then on a race that supports like brain tumors um, that was a very emotional moment for me now one common theme for a lot of long distance runners uh, marathoners, ultra marathoners, and the like, is that this idea of kind of, especially when things get hard, you know, kind of overcoming difficult patches by basically, you know, the, we, I'm trying to phrase this the right way, that for a lot of people who run these distances, you know, the, the, the marathon, the 50K, the 50 mile, the 100K, the 100 mile, that there's almost like a demon inside that they're trying to overcome through yeah. their running. Maybe not, that might not be the only motivation to do it, but that for a lot of people, it's one of the motivations. And it, it certainly is one of those things that helps them through a rough patch where it's that inspiration, the motivation to fight through. You've had a lot of things happen in your life. Is that something that resonates with you? Yeah, um, definitely. As I said, um, I think that is what was fuel for a lot of the running um especially in those first three years um starting from just building the distance getting competitive and like i immediately jumped in in the longer distances so i I, I skipped everything else and it just helped me it cleared my head it was really something very therapeutic for me when i was when I was overwhelmed in life, I knew that even if it would bother me or if if it it works through me in the run, like I would find solution and it would solutions and it would clear my head. Um, so yeah, I can't really resonate to it um, with it, but I had an like as we said, like after the three year period after that. Uh, or as, let's say after two years, I had that moment at CIM where I finally broke 245, which was a huge goal of mine. And then we also have had just moved to Sacramento six months ago, um, which if you haven't been to Sacramento, it's, uh, it's a great running community. But if you move from a green place like Austria or um, the East Coast, um, it it was rough for me. Um, it was a rough transition. It was because of the drought. This was very dry, completely flat. It took three months until the first raindrop touched my skin, which is maybe may sound weird, but like I was running with my dog when that happened, and we literally like almost started dancing in the rain because I was <laughs> I was just so worn out by all the like it's just if everything is brown, like for me that means literally every everything around me is dead, and like I kind of felt like absorbing that energy. Um, yeah, so from there, 
going back to December, I started trail running, which was two years after, uh, and not just trail, but trail ultra running. Um, two years after I started running and I won my first, like the first trail race that it did, I, the first 50K that it did, I won. So I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but I, I love being out in the nature and on top of it, it seems like I'm competitive. So again, I had the moment like, that's, that's it. Like, I feel home. Yeah. You say absorbing the energy. How much energy did you absorb from the Sacramento running community? Because it seems very robust. There's yeah. a lot of people in that area that are very into it. I know you're associated with Fleet Feet as well mm -hmm. uh, from a professional standpoint. But just interpersonally, like friendships and all of that, like just to put in perspective, I've had a lot of people reach out to me to say, hey, you should interview Robert. And like, it's funny because it's not as if you're this, again, it's not as if like you're this household name. You're not like Kara Goucher or someone like that. But yeah. I've, had, I've had so many people recommend you to be on this show. And it's because there's so many, not only because, first of all, obviously you're a wonderful guest and I, I'm privileged to have you on. But Thank I you. Think it's a, also, it also shows the nature of the running community in that area, which seems to be so strong. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of, there's a big history with uh, the running community. Um, and like you were mentioning Fleet Feet, they were founded 76 in Sacramento, I guess the, by two women. So very progressive. Um at that time and that that history carry i think is being carried throughout until now and the running community is here is very supportive it's very welcoming um i own i got into trail running because one one of my co-workers and friend and then also my my first uh, running trainee that I had in that area um she took me on a on a trail run when I had that rough patch um and yeah so it's like there is a lot of opportunity just because of how welcoming the running community is in Sacramento yeah and so you've had a lot of success as a runner I detailed it in the intro you've touched on it several times and that led to you being chosen to represent Austria at the 2018 World Trail Championships, which were held in Spain, which obviously holds a special place in your heart. You just mentioned it before yeah. that you did some of your advanced studies there. What was that like being selected for that? It's like such a, such a, such a prestigious event. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, that was what, what started to like about half a year in, in my trail running adventures, it's kind of started to, I, I reached out first to the coordinator and asked like what requirements I would have to, to achieve, to be able to, to be relevant, to be chosen. And he was like, well, just basically keep, keep up the work and it looks good. And so I was like, wow. And then just, just, just keep winning all your races. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I was uh, very um, humbled and um, I put in a lot of work because I wanted to 
performed really well at North Face because for me that was like the first race uh, on the bigger stage, um, and I was I was hoping to get as close like to a t- top ten position as possible. Uh, but like top 20, I knew that this was more a realistic approach. And as you mentioned, like I, play, I placed 16. So I was, um, and I, I just came, came in before, um, before the first place female finisher. She, she's like, what was her name? Neil, Nielsen. I don't remember her first name, but she is one of the best runners female runners in the world um from salomon and i was just i'm that, that was amazing it was really an amazing experience for me um and then i got the email after that yeah that i'm that i'm on the team and as a non-professional runner and a non-sponsored runner um it's quite expensive obviously to fly overseas and um and here again the Sacramento running community uh, came in and friends encouraged me to start the GoFundMe page. And yeah, basically that that money was raised uh, that I needed for the traveling and lodging was raised within, within less than a month. Um, yeah, it was just... It was a really, really great experience. Just that whole process of being elected, being selected, getting the funds together, and then being able to focus on the training for that event. And how long did you, like, what was the time gap between when you were selected and when the race was held? So there were a solid five months in between. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, So that was held this year mm-hmm. and um i'm just going to spoil it for everybody uh this was as you put it was unfortunately was the worst sports performance of your life yeah so that is obviously super unfortunate this was you know a race that you spent a lot of time preparing for um what was i guess what what about this race was so challenging for you yeah it was it was interesting um so I went there perfectly prepared, like all my my runs and um, tune-up races. I just went really well. Um, when I, I, so I flew to Europe a little, like a, few, a week early before the the race um, to visit my family. And I just, I felt, I started to feel off, whatever it was, but my resting heart rate was elevated and just everything was, it was a little bit weird. Um, and I could not, I just couldn't identify what the, what the issue was. Um, and then in Spain, I met with my team mates and like the day of the race, I just, and the day before the race, I still felt the same, like just, uh, maybe it was never, I mean, I thought like maybe I'm just nervous and I have had nervosity before I race and then on race day everything is fine you know how it is with taper madness and so on exactly but um so I lined up at the starting line and um it was so that the world championships it ended up being almost 55 miles long so 
it was supposed to be 85 kilometers, but because of some um, restrictions, they had to add three kilometers on in the end, like two days before the race, which I thought, yeah, that's awesome because I'm used to to finishing really strong and reeling people in. So at this point, I was like, that's good for me. <laughs> I'm not knowing what's going to happen two days later. Um, but yeah, so I lined up on the race. The first, I mean, it's amazing. You, you, I was standing there with like some of the best, like at least some of the best trail runners of each country that was represented there. And then like you have, you have Zach, Zach Miller there, um, which is, was just amazing to to see and be in the same hotel with him and like meet him before um and then you have all the european guys that i to to be honest even though i'm from europe running wise i feel like i'm i'm from the states because that's where everything started and i i don't haven't really ran in europe before so that was exciting and then my family was there my in-laws were there um yeah so it was awesome and then we started that race and it just felt awful similar to what i was mentioning on my first marathon um it just didn't feel good it it felt like i was working way too hard considering like how fast i was going um and there were only um two so remember it right two three no there were only three aid stations allowed where we where our crews were allowed um so one was at kilometer 30 about 17 miles in then one was around kilometer 40 so like just the marathon mark and then another one was just like less than eight miles after that and I thought that I wouldn't even need like that because it was so short of a distance in between. So in the beginning, like my crew was like, okay, please have that ready there. But I, I mean, it's, it's eight miles. What, what can happen over 10, over eight miles? So hitting the first aid station um, wasn't great. So the first 30, kilo, 30 kilometers was really rough. Then I actually started to get into a groove between like this um this aid station and to the almost the half just a little bit before the halfway halfway point i felt like nice i got in my groove i, I got i was starting to started to reel people in i was in around like 40 to f position f between 40 and 50 which was kind of like where i wanted to be at the time um and then like within within a few miles, it was just cramps, really, really, really bad cramps started to set in. Um, it was um, my my clothing, everything was just drenched in sweat early on. Like if I look on the pictures now, it was just I knew that as like looking at those pictures, I just set myself up for trouble. Um, and then those cramps were, they were getting, they were getting so bad. It started 
in my um, attack doors. Um, they were locking up. If I would run a downhill, and it would pull my knee in, so I almost I would almost trip myself. Um, and then my calf started to lock up, and then so one muscle group at a time. Um, so when I approached that sixty kilometer mark between between 40 and 60 kilometers, that is when those issues really started to happen. And I knew, like just I was being passed. I knew that this is not going to improve. And I knew that I'm risking my health here for something that I will not reach my goal. And I made my mind um, that I, the best thing that I can do is is to drop at that last aid station that I mentioned with at kilometer 60, because then for the next 25 kilometers, it just went up and down through valleys in the mountains. So there was nothing like as soon as, so if I leave that aid station, like I make the decision that I'm going to be on your, on my own and probably will have to hike that. Um, And Unfortunately, now, again, in retro perspective, I, I did take the, the decision and I continued on um, and just leaving that aid station. It was a, about a two-mile long descent, basically just climbing, pretty much climbing boulders straight down so that the terrain there was nothing that I've ever like ran on nor was able to train on. Um, nor did I expect it to be this way. Um, and my leg would just lock up in in certain positions as I stepped down those two to three feet uh, high rocks. Um, and I was yelling out all kind of obscenities in disbelief. And then I started to laugh hysterically. And like I, I just, it was rough. Um and I was actually really looking forward for that next like two or almost three mile long climb. And it's, it's, it's not like in switchbacks, it's just right up the next hill. So it was, it was a uh, really, really, really bad. Just talking about it now, like I'm, I'm, I'm having coming those emotions and feelings up again. Um, Yeah. So it was it was very painful. Um, it was terrible, and I knew that I'm gonna pay my dues for continuing. Um, which why I was even when I when I finished, I was just obviously I was disappointed, but I already had like four hours of terrible hike behind me where I could like think about and and devour the disappointment so i was mostly just completely distressed and um yeah um just mad at myself for not for just not saying no when i should have and do you still feel that same way like what what are some of the things that you took from this experience that you think help you now yeah, I, I still feel the same way. Um, I should, like, it took me, we are now, f- so this was in, on May 12th, so May, so it's almost four months later. Um, it took me until 
two weeks ago um, that I feel like when I go out on a run, I'm not stressed and I'm enjoying it again as it was before that race. Wow. That's a long time. Yep. So if you want to like just reel back to what we said before with finding running as that outlet, like um, the big problem that I had to deal with the last four months was like I was in a bad place just because of there was some big trauma there after that race. There was some disappointment there that even though I acknowledged it, I, I didn't acknowledge it enough. And then as I went back into light training with every single run that I went outside, I kind of kept re-traumatizing myself. So instead of now running, that was always my, or that became over those past four years, my outlet and my, where I could, which made me feel better. It actually made me feel worse. Um, and that just fed into yeah, depressive behavior, um, which I've encountered in the past, but I, you just, I always find something, um, to deal with that. Um, so what happened or what I had, the question that I asked myself through this period or mostly during those past two weeks when I start, when I felt better and I feel like I have a more clear view on it is how, how did it happen that running that was my, like my exercise of choice, obviously to improve and to, to challenge myself, but to, to get kind of like that safe haven, how, how and when did it happen that competing and performing became more important and that it, that it let, uh, that I let that performance aspect kind of take away the joy of the journey to, to improve as a runner. So in answering that question for yourself, is that how you broke the negative cycle that you kept spinning around? Um, yeah. Um, with that negative cycle, I, I also had, um, me, me and my wife, we, we are in the, we're taking, we started some therapy at the beginning of the year and that was really helpful. Um, but yeah, it is just, it's, it's painful as it is in, in depression. It always, like, even if you acknowledge it early, it's still, you just can't, you do not have the saying on when you are over it. It's just, and I know that it's going to take time and I know I will get out of this hole, but it still doesn't make me feel better knowing that. Because if it's for me, I want it to be over now. If that if that does make any sense. Yeah, there's a big difference between intellectually knowing that it's going to pass, right, and actually having it pass and having that feeling of um, normalcy again. Exactly. Yeah. So now. That I, I think the biggest difference for me now, and to answer your question, is um, now that 
so this this past Sunday, um, I went back to Mount Diablo because it was it was the same race like last year where it was a real very hot, and I signed up for that way before Spain. Um, I I'm a good friend with the the race organizers, and I was like I messaged them ten days ago and they said I might this might be my first DNS because right now I'm not in the I cannot see me mentally to embrace the challenge like that. Mount Diablo is a is a is a mountain that you that is it's about three thousand eight hundred feet climb and you climb it twice. So it's just three thousand eight hundred straight up, straight down, straight up, straight down. Um, so it's a very challenging course. It's almost eight and a half thousand feet in total climbing and descending. Um, but as I said, the last 10 days, I started to feel better. Um, so I went there and I just wanted to say to see where I am right now. Um, after four months of almost no training, just being busy with uh, my mostly dealing with my depression and just my trainees and my friends helped me a lot because I can focus on their journeys rather than mine. Um, but I felt better. So I went there, I ran the race and I, imp- first I improved my time from last year by 24 minutes and I broke the course record by 11 minutes. And it was just like, it was crazy. Man, this like it—it it really is amazing. It's like such such a drastic shift, yeah, between where you were just two weeks prior, right? And then the biggest difference is now, like, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I have both those things like clearly in my mind. Like, I do wanna, like, it is my choice that running is something where I embrace the journey. And this is what it gives to me. And then like winning and all those things. Yeah. Um, for me, and that's what I, what I used to say is like winning. It, it's, there's always some, it's, it, it always happens because there are others that are faster than me. They are not showing up. So it's in the end, it's every single time. It is a competition between me and myself. And I should, I do not want to have, that happen again that like those extrinsic pressures or whatever it is um i let them um get me out of balance and then i risk to fall in a hole like it happened after the world championships where where i take four months to recover from right it's almost like you want the positive you also you want the benefit of positive race results to kind of like continue to like uplift your mental health but not have the counterbalancing of like as if if you have a, a bad race to have it not negatively affect right your mental health right which is which can be a which can be a tall task because if you have it if you have that connection point between your results and how um and just 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 not, not that not the depression is a choice because it certainly is not but the fact that you, you, I guess you don't want your mental health to be connected to your race results, if at all possible, because if things don't go well, then all of a sudden they can compound on you pretty quick. Right. And I mean, there are different, like I'm okay with having like a bad result and like you can use it as a fuel, right? 
but mm-hmm. it's another it's another um thing if you push your body like beyond the limits and then like the same as what we said earlier like with the exercise science background and you just ignore it and you just still go for it and end up injured like a very similar thing happened during that race at worlds where i was like this is not like this is not healthy this is dangerous um i cannot walk straight you are in the middle of mountains on balancing on rocks like you slip and fall and it's not just the scratch like it can be serious but you still make the decision to go on and that's something that i that i don't I don't not want to make the decision again. Like there's nothing healthy on that decision. Right. All right. You've been so generous with your time. We're approaching an hour and a half in this episode. My goodness. Um, Before we get going, one more question. Uh, What do you have coming up next for, uh, for 2018? Good question. (laughs) I'm actually decided I'm going back on the road for the next few months and I'm going to prepare for the California International Marathon. Um, I do think um, the balance between road running and trail running is important. Um, trail running gives me a lot of strength and power, um, but by cutting out road running for too long, we, we lose a little bit of speed. Um, so I'm going to work on getting my speed back until December and then I go back on the trails. And you like to set big goals. Do you have a big goal connected to CIM yet? Yeah, I, I, I certainly want to break uh, 240s or something with a 2-3 on there and we will see during the training cycle um, how realistic and how, well, how low I can get in that 230 range. Oh, I love the mindset there. That was I like that was, that was very clever. Well done. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Robert. This has been an absolute pre- an absolute pleasure. Excuse me, and I really appreciate the candor and frankness you talked about a bunch of uh, difficult topics. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. All right. Good luck the rest of the way. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, once again for coming on this show. This was such a special episode. And thank you listeners for listening all the way to the end. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, make sure you follow Robert. Uh, His Instagram is uh, posted in the show notes as well. I want to just give a shout out to Run for PRs for starting a sponsorship here with the show. They do great work. And if you're interested in working with them, again, www.runforprs.co. Type in the Rambling Runner in the How Do You Hear About Us section. And I would really appreciate it. And I know you are going to like what they're able to, uh, to do for you and with you to help you achieve your goals. So with that being said, thank you once again and happy running.